Um, thank you so much, Adeline, for the very kind introduction. Um, thank you so much for coming to the talk today. Uh, great turnout, really appreciate it. Um, so the title of my presentation is But What About Men? Gender Discomfort in International Criminal Justice. And in my paper today, I want to address the question of what happens when critical sociological concepts such as gender are incorporated into international criminal justice institutions. And I believe that this question has been somewhat neglected because much of the current scholarship focuses on the more normative question of whether international criminal law can be a force for good for feminism or not, and thereby somewhat neglecting the broader sociological and empirical dynamics of doing gender through international criminal law. And I will first um, briefly discuss uh, the gender provisions entailed in the Rome Statute, which is the court's founding document, and situate those provisions both in the feminist advocacy that shaped the negotiations for the Rome Statute in 1998, but I will also situate it in the broader feminist literature on gender, SGBV, and international criminal law. And I will then examine more closely the discursive representation of gender and SGBV at the ICC in The Hague and in Northern Uganda. And I will argue that a gender backlash has been fomenting in international criminal justice with practitioners expressing their discomfort with what they see as a ubiquitous gender discourse. And I will show how gender is, is co-opted or recuperated in international criminal justice through what I call the legal strategy. And the legal strategy entails two discursive moves. Uh, first, gender is rhetorically externalized at the court as an agenda that is driven from outside, imposed on the court from outside. And second, there is a new discourse that has formed in international criminal justice which argues that gender as currently conceived neglects or discriminates against men. And I will, I will, show, how, um, I will show how the legal strategy has essentially neutralized the critical purchase of the gender concept by playing into legal sensibilities that see procedure rather than any substantive change as the essence of law. And while patriarchy, I think, is often mystified as a historical legacy or as a, a residual bias in legal institutions, uh, today in the paper I, I will try to tease out uh, what I see as the ongoing discursive and institutional reworkings of patriarchal assumptions to make them more palatable to our contemporary sensibilities and legal rationalities. And this paper is, um, is based on my doctoral uh, work I did for my doctoral dissertation. It's based on five months of fieldwork conducted at the ICC in The Hague and two months in Uganda in 2013-2014, as well as follow-up interviews that I did last year at the court. And it's based on interpretive analysis of the court's documents, as well as 70 interviews with diverse practitioners, ICC lawyers, judges, and international and local civil society. And the focus here is really on the discursive representation of gender, SGBV, and victimhood across practitioner discourses, legal filings, as well as the feminist literature. 
Um, oops. The ICC is at the forefront of gender justice. Tina Intelman, who was the um, former president of the ICC's Assembly of States parties, proclaimed in 2013. And at the heart of this claim are several gender-related provisions that shape the court's substantive jurisdiction, its procedures, and its institutional makeup. Um, for the first time in international criminal law, the Rome Statute codifies sexual and gender-based violence as separate war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, more specifically, the statute enumerates rape, sexual slavery, and forced prostitution, forced pregnancy, and forced sterilization and other grave forms of sexual violence as international crimes. Gender is also included as a ground for the crime of persecution. And the statute stipulates that in the application and interpretation of all of the court's law, um, the, the judges have to make sure that the interpretation is in line with internationally recognized human rights and be without any adverse distinction based on, the, based on grounds such as gender. Um, the court's gender provisions also shape its procedures. Uh, so the court provides uh, victims with rights to participation, reparation, and it also provides for special protective measures, especially for victims and witnesses of crimes of sexual violence. And finally, the court's statute says that the institutional makeup of the court shall be characterized by a fair representation of female and male judges. And this provision also applies to the office of the prosecutor and to the registry. And the prosecutor is required to appoint advisors who have specific legal expertise on sexual and gender-based crimes. And these provisions are quite unprecedented in the context of international criminal law. If you look back at the Nuremberg tribunals or Tokyo tribunals, they very much neglected the gender dimensions of international crimes. And it was only in the 1990s with the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda that these crimes came to the forefront and were further developed in the court's um, jurisprudence. And now it's the first time with the ICC that these crimes are, are properly anchored in the statutory law of the court. So how did these um, gender provisions make their way into the Rome Statute in the first place, given that this is ultimately a treaty negotiated uh, between states? And it has become a bit of a conventional wisdom in the literature that uh, this was a global civil society achievement. In 1998, when the Rome Statute was negotiated, uh, several NGO coalitions traveled to Rome to participate in the treaty negotiations and to use their legal expertise to influence state delegations and, um, and sort of draft treaty proposals. And, um, sorry. and the women's, there was a specific coalition called the Women's Caucus for Gender Justice, which was a coalition of several hundreds of women's rights organizations across the world. And they really came to embody this civil society push for gender justice. But while civil society very much celebrated these provisions as a, as a huge success, the feminist literature has much more critically engaged with the feminist legacy in Rome. And in the feminist literature, the role of international criminal law in achieving feminist goals is actually highly contested. And I think we can sort of broadly distinguish between two different tendencies here. One which I call reformism, 
and the other one which I call skepticism. And reformists uh, see the international criminalization of SGBV as an effective tool for advancing feminism by which they understand the protection of women. And they have been somewhat disappointed with the Rome Statute because they say it doesn't comprehensively criminalize everyday gender violence, particularly domestic violence, which is often aggravated in the context of war. And they've also criticized the court's gender definition as stunningly narrow, circular, and a setback when compared to previous UN definitions. Uh, the statute defines gender as referring to the two sexes, male and female, within the context of society. And you can already see it's a bit of a compromise definition between feminists in Rome that tried to push for a sociological, a social constructivist concept of gender, and sort of more conservative forces, particular the Vatican and Islamic states, who didn't want to have any gender definition in the court, but if there was to be one, it had to mean men and women and nothing else. Now, skeptics are, uh, mm, sorry. <laughs> skeptics are a very broad church, and I think we can sort of uh, distinguish th three different strands here. Uh, first, you have radical feminists who are skeptical of criminal law's potential to advance feminism by which they understand the liberation of women and men from patriarchy. And they find the whole idea that you can take existing international law, and which is steeped in patriarchal assumptions and which was designed by men for men, that you can simply take this and sort of weave gender provisions in. They found that idea highly misleading and futile. You also have uh, third world approaches to international law, Twain scholarship, and there they worry that this sort of focus on SGBV crowds out other feminist concerns, particularly the socioeconomic marginalization of women and global inequalities. And they're particularly critical of this construction of SGBV as the ultimate crime which drove feminist advocacy in Rome because they say that instead of abolishing a hierarchy of victimhood, which historically put SGBV victims at the bottom, what feminists in Rome were actually doing where they were just trying to reverse it and put SGBV victims on top. And you also have sex-positive approaches, which it's, it's not a great label, but uh, um, it's another tendency in the literature. And they are wary of what they see as a global seal, as a missionary seal to criminalize SGBV because they fear the heteronormative overregulation of sex and the carceral tendencies of feminism. And if you look at the, the definition of gender in the Rome Statute, it's very clear that it's sort of within the framework of heteronormativity, there is no recognition of LGBTQ plus or third gender. And uh, since the Rome Statute was uh, adopted 20 years ago, there have been quite a lot of gender ups and downs. In 2014, the prosecutor published a policy paper on sexual gender-based crimes, which was widely celebrated because it, um, it recognizes SGBC crimes as amongst the gravest of the statute and elevates the prosecution to a key strategic goal of the prosecution. But in more recent times, there was a sense that the gender setbacks have somehow overshadowed initial gains uh, 17 years after the court came into existence, there's still no conviction for SGBV crimes. 
Despite the fact that SGBV charges are actually quite prominent in the cases, in 61.5 cases before the court, SGBV charges are included. Um, but this is not just about, and, and for example, in June 2018, uh, the appeals chamber at the court uh, overturned the conviction of Jean-Pierre Bember, who was the first person at the court who was convicted for sexual violence against both men and women as a commander. And in 2014, gender justice advocates were already dismayed when uh, Germain Katanga was acquitted of sexual slavery and rape charges while he was convicted for other crimes such as murder, pillaging, and destruction of property because there was a bit of a sense that the chamber had applied a higher evidentiary bar or a different evidentiary bar for SGBV crimes and for other crimes. But this is not just about convictions. I mean, for example, in 2018, an all-male presidency uh, took over, replaced the all-female presidency uh, before. And now female judges at the court are actually underrepresented. There are only one-third of all judges are women, and only one out of five key leadership positions is held by a woman. And so some of these feminist advocates who were very positive and tried to help set up the court have become a bit disillusioned. And they argue that they call themselves critical friends of the court, and they argue that uh, they try to sort of explain the court's disappointing gender record by sort of arguing that the court has been sliding back into old habits, there are some subconscious biases, or the influence of old informal gender legacies. And I think that this kind of vague language doesn't go far enough, because I think it turns patriarchy into some, some kind of thing that sort of mysteriously lingers on unbeknownst to anyone. And I, and I would like today to push the debate further by actually showing the discursive moves and strategies that help to reproduce patriarchal assumptions, not just at the court, but in international criminal justice more widely. So the material comes from the court, but I'm trying to make um, a wider argument here. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from critical race scholars here when it comes to the uh, reproduction of, um, of ideological assumptions. Critical race scholars have argued that instead of just seeing race as some kind of social construction that once it is constructed, it simply sticks around, they actually highlight the work, the ideological, the institutional, the material work that continues to flow into the everyday, everyday maintenance and naturalization of race and racism. And they, they're very explicit. They say, nothing handed down from the past could keep race alive if we did not constantly reinvent and re-ritualize it to fit our own terrain. And I want to do something similar for gender. I want to show how um, patriarchal assumptions are reinvented and modernized to fit our contemporary sensibilities while not really touching the gender status quo with the help of the legal strategy. Um, so I argue that gender is recuperated in international criminal justice through the legal strategy, which entails two moves. The first is that the court's discourse externalizes gender issues. Gender justice is understood as an agenda that is driven from outside, and which is also primarily relevant elsewhere. It's not relevant at the court, it's relevant somewhere far away in the court situation countries. And then secondly, I want to shed light on this new discourse that I call, but what about men? which argues that, well, gender, as we currently see it, it really is problematic because it neglects and discriminates against men. 
Um, so when I, when I interviewed practitioners at the court in 2014, uh, many of them were actually very supportive of um, a more gender-sensitive approach to the court's work. But there was also that sense of, well, this is a bit of an external agenda that is sort of driven by NGOs, by the gender lobby. And that's partly surprising because that was the whole point of anchoring these SGBV and gender provisions in the statute to make it core mandate of the court and not something uh, outside. Uh, so for example, already in the 1990s, uh, Chief Justice Goldstone, who was the chief prosecutor at the ICTY and the ICTR, he already expressed that sentiment that he felt he was besieged with petitions and letters mainly from women's groups. And that sentiment is still, I argue, very much alive. When I was at the court, for example, one judge told me at the ICC in 2014, well, there are a lot of lobbies behind the court that press this gender agenda. So there was a bit of a sense that um, the practitioners at the court have not fully taken on board these gender provisions. Uh, one lawyer at the registry told me, I somehow feel that people are scared to openly be critical about discussions of SGBV. Um, when it comes to women at least. And then there's a bit of that political correctness, lip service thing being paid to that. I don't think anyone would ever say something openly. I definitely don't think that the culture of the court overall is a culture of genuinely caring about a lot of human rights issues. We do those things at the court because we are told we have to. And there was just generally a bit of a sense that, well, this whole gender thing has gone a bit too far. So one judge told me, well, I'm totally for gender issues, but I wonder whether we have not gone a bit too far here. Uh, it's at the OTP, someone told me, well, it's a really overused term at the court. And then there was also the sense that this is a bit of a current fashion, uh, that sort of STDV is now a hot topic among donors, and that's why we have to sort of do something about it. Um, but. Uh, sorry. But I don't want to portray the, the court's discourse as overly uniform, because it's not. It's actually highly contested on gender issues. And in fact, part of this reaction, part of this backlash, can be sort of interpreted as a reaction to much more ambitious and structural concepts of gender that also circulate at the court, especially at the Trust Fund for Victims, which is the reparation and assistance arm of the court. And the Trust Fund for Victims actually has argued that the court should go much further. They have argued that the court should implement transformative reparations with a view to eliminating the pre-existing structural inequalities that have led to or encouraged the violence. So they say if you have war crimes, crimes against humanity or genocide, you cannot simply try to put a victim back to the situation that existed before the crimes happened because the majority of those victims will already have been the dispossessed, the discriminated against, the powerless. So if you really want to deter and prevent these, these international crimes, you have, to, you have to address the structural causes of conflict. But this is exactly the type of vision that some of the court's practitioners find very dangerous and they see it as a threat. And uh, many of the people made the point that justice at the court is procedural. It's not a material concept, it's a procedural con um, concept. And the second quote here comes from the Peel's Chambers decision in the Bemba case, the one that overturns the conviction for SGBV. And they argue very um, specifically, they argue, it's a, it's a separate opinion that the judges in the majority appended. It's a bit of a thing at the ICC that everyone needs to append their separate opinion. 
So they argue, what we do suggest is that we stop viewing the International Criminal, Criminal Court's reparation procedures as part of a mechanism to restore social justice and to heal the wounds of societies that have been torn apart by aggression, genocide, crimes against humanity, or war crimes. Only if we do that can we relieve prosecutors and judges from the potential pressure that is currently imposed upon them to secure convictions at all costs. So there's a bit of a sense that this gender lobby is associated with sort of a, a pro-conviction pressure that's put on the court, and the practitioners here sort of put a lid on this and say, this is not our business, law has to be a neutral procedure. But it's interesting to note here that when I interviewed uh, the court's lawyers in 2014, and we talked about gender justice, they would usually talk about it as an external problem. They would talk about SGBV and the court situation countries. They would say, that the, I guess the underlying message was a bit, gender justice, changing the genocide status quo is important there in those very patriarchal traditional societies, but not here at the court. Um, but this was a bit different in 2018 when I came back to interview practitioners, where some of them would also talk about gender dynamics at the court, possibly uh, also against the backdrop of the Me Too movement. Um, so one victim's lawyer, for example, he would argue that the law is not the problem. The problem, the reason why we have these, these, these deficiencies is the lack of gender balance at all levels and the dominance of old school judges. And then he says, and we have sexual harassment here in this court. There are a lot of stories across the prosecution, the chambers, and the defense. And uh, another a female lawyer who I interviewed told me this story of how she feels at the court. She says, I can't even believe that every time I stand up in the courtroom, I'm still called Mrs. And when I tell the legal officer, I don't want to be referred to as Mrs. My marital status, my own incorrect marital status, is not a matter for public consumption of the chamber. It's kind of laughed off as if it's, as if it's not a thing. I mean, it's a small thing, but it's 2018. And then I look around the courtroom, three male judges, one male lead prosecutor, the two defense counselor men. As always, the only counsel level woman in the courtroom is the victim's lawyer when she's there. And it's the victim's thing. The victims are like women fuzzy. And yeah, if they're happy to demean women staff members, it's not surprising that when they're dealing with witnesses, they have the same prejudices. So here for the first time, she makes that connection between what's happening at the court and the gender dynamics at the court and how they have a bearing on the way the court engages uh, with SGBV and gender issues outside. So maybe it's after all the court's business to, to look at these issues. Um, so now I'm moving to the second discourse um, that uh, I've observed at the court because apart from too much or externally driven, there was also a much more recent critique of the court's gender focus as neglecting uh, SGBV against men. So for example, one lawyer told me, well, I'm really frustrated with feminism because they don't recognize SGBV against men in conflict as a feminist issue. And this is a quote from another lawyer who told me, well, I think we have to be a bit careful. Gender is not something that we should be obsessed with. And sometimes it really doesn't have any relevance. For example, you also had men who suffered these sexual crimes. And this critique has come actually very strongly from the field, particularly uh, in Uganda where I did my research. Um, there is the Refugee Law Project, which is a legal advocacy NGO, a very prominent one. 
And they have really become a mouthpiece for that neglected issue of STBV against men in conflict. And already in 2014, they criticized the prosecutor's policy paper as failing to address the historical exclusion of male victims from international conceptions of conflict-related violence. And indeed, STBV against men is heavily underreported. Um, the Refugee Law Project they did research with male refugees in the DRC, which uh, suggested that a third of them had experienced STBV in their lifetime. And they are particularly vulnerable groups, male groups such as male refugees, ex-combatants, and detainees. And the Refugee Law Project's intervention has become part of a growing academic and ac activist critique of the international community's neglect of STBV against men. Uh, and this, this discourse has also become more institutionalized. For example, in 2016, the All Survivors Project was set up at the University of California, Los Angeles, which is specifically dedicated to sexual violence against men and boys. They published a report in 2018 on sexual violence against men and boys in Syria and Turkey. You also have the Center for African Justice, Peace and Human Rights in The Hague, which is dedicated to those issues. And in general, in the last few years, there have been many more publications in the academic literature, but also, for example, UNHCR has published a big report on STBV against men last year in the MENA region. So you can see that this is sort of a, a, a growing concern. And I argue that much of this emerging literature is based on a particular understanding of why and how rape against men happens in conflict. Um, it argues, I call this the feminization theory. It argues that rape against men in conflict functions as a social message of defeat and humiliation sent to him or his community, which is often conceived in ethnic terms, through the emasculated male body. And uh, I think some of this goes back to a quite a seminal article that Sandesh Sivakumaran published in 2007, where he argues that there are three defining features of STBV against men in conflict. Um, sexual violence against men in conflict is enacted through emasculation, feminization, and homosexualization. So the idea is uh, emasculation means that men are deprived of their masculinity uh, through sexual abuse. Where masculinity means man's ability to exert power, including by the use of force. Feminization goes further. The intention is to reduce, to lower the social status of the male survivor to that of a woman. He becomes a woman, uh, powerless and unable to, um, to defend himself. And then homosexualization functions quite similarly. The idea is that because masculinity is associated with heterosexuality, sexual abuse of a man by a man is interpreted as a homosexual act, uh, which homosexualizes the victim, while the masculinity of the perpetrator is confirmed. He's a real heterosexual man. I guess my concern here is with feminization theory is that its representation often blurs from an explanatory theory or a descriptive theory where feminization defines both the perpetrator's motive for and the victim's experience of rape into a normative theory where feminization is what makes the rape of man particularly wrong. And you can see in, um, in um, the, you can see in testimonies from male survivors 
that there is a clear sense that they have been wronged through feminization. So I just want to quickly show you a survivor's testimony from uh, the Refugee Laws Project's documentary called Gender Against Man. And it's also for their husbands and families to see them as more than a piece of property. Even Moan Kuman is coverage of men that are directly targeted by other men. This Congolese refugee was arrested and thrown in prison amongst the very soldiers he had been investigating. They started by torturing us, beating us, they tore our clothes, and in that darkness we were thrown in the cemetery. There were many soldiers, I don't know the number, there were many soldiers who slept with me, just to say I had sexual intercourse with me, whether in my ears, my eyes, my mouth, wherever they wanted, they would screw me. These were things which I could not imagine ever happened, but they happened. It is something which, when I think about it, causes me a lot of trauma. A lot of trauma. One doesn't really know how to live as one did before. It's a sort of vengeance, a sort of humiliation, a way of attacking our identity so they could diminish us in society. What did they say when they were torturing and raping you? They said many things, but it was in Lingala. But when you translate it, you can see that they wanted to show that they were superior to us, that we were worth nothing, that this time round they were putting us in the place of women. You know that in society they say that men dominate and women are inferior. So they say to us that we are going to show you that you are women, that you are not men like us. That is what they wanted to affirm through their actions that they committed on us. victims' um, perceptions that are often steeped in patri <coughs> patriarchal assumptions um, are then, I think, often reproduced by practitioners and even scholars without, I think, sufficiently questioning and interrogate interrogating the ideological premises in which they are couched. For example, it has become quite common in policy reports, UN reports, but also in academic literature, it has, very, it has become very common to say that men are victimized through an attack on their masculinity. So for example, the ICC prosecutor in the Kenyatta case, he argued these weren't just attacks on men's sexual organs as such, but were intended as attacks on men's identities as men within their society and were designed to destroy their masculinity. But masculinity here is understood precisely as the superiority of men over women in society, and that's what uh, male survivors expressed. They would say they wanted us to feel as though we were women, and this is the worst insult, to feel like a woman. So I, I argue that this notion that male victims are wronged by SGBV because it lowers their social status to that of a woman is problematic not only because it normalizes the rape of women, but also because it legitimizes men's superior status in society. Uh, but nonetheless, this kind of language has very much sifted into international criminal justice discourses. For example, the victim's lawyer in the Ongwen case tried to include evidence of um, sexual violence against men, and he argues at its core, sexual violence ruptures the victim's understanding of their own gender identity and what, of, of, and what, of, of what it means to be man. 
notions previously predicated on traditional models of masculinity expressed in relation to and counterposed to female identity. And indeed, apart from the normal, normal social, psychological, and physical harm that both men and women suffer from when they suffer sexual violence, the literature implies and sometimes explicitly states that men suffer extra harms. So for example, this is a quote from a scholar called Simich, and she argues that sexual torture leaves males, as is the case with female victims, with lifelong trauma. However, it triggers some specific gender traumas that are unique to men, such as feeling emasculated, feminized, and stripped of their sense of manhood. And I think this discourse has problematic comparative consequences because it implies that women suffer no such extra harm. Rape by men allegedly does not violate women's sexual identity, which is presumed to be uniformly heterosexual, so they cannot be uh, heterosexualized. And rape does not defeminize them because it is ordinary that rape happens to women. So there's a danger that this construction of uh, male rape and conflict as extraordinary and shocking is based on an understanding of rape against women as, as being ordinary and normal. So I argue that feminization theory creates an absurd normative logic, precisely that which makes rape of women possible and normal, namely patriarchy, suddenly becomes part of man's rightful identity, their masculinity, whose deprivation through rape makes rape of men even worse than rape of women. And I'm not, I don't know whether there is a right to masculinity and when, whether the law has to protect such a right. And, um, and this is not to say, this is not to deny that men uh, face many challenges when they try to report HTBV um, or when they try to receive medical treatment. There is limited awareness of HTBV against men among medical, legal, and police personnel. Uh, one man who tried to report the crime was dismissed. They said, you are a man, you cannot be raped. There are, I think, more than 60 countries in the world in which SGBV is recognized to only legally happen against women, not men. And finally, in some countries, for example, in Uganda, where homosexuality is criminalized, uh, men who report the crime face, um, could face allegations or even charges of homosexual offenses. But I think that this idea, this kind of construction of particular stigma, sometimes obscures a much more complicated reality. So for example, the All Survivors Project, in their report on sexual violence against men in detention in Syria, they argue for men and boys who have suffered sexual violence as part of wider torture and ill-treatment and detention, the consequences can be particularly severe and long-lasting. So here again we see a bit this construction of competitive male victimhood, particularly severe, unique trauma. But then they also explain that when men come out of detention in Syria, they are celebrated as resistance heroes because no one will assume that they have been raped, while female detainees who come out uh, are automatically socially stigmatized because the assumption is that they were raped and violated. So you can see that with men, on the one hand, they don't have that automatic social stigma, but then of course that also has a silencing function where they cannot actually reveal what happened. So I think we have to be a bit careful when we speak about 
particular stigma because it's quite complicated. So I argue that in the discursive construction in international criminal justice, men, unlike women, are portrayed as triple victims. First, of the sexual violence they suffered. Second, of the violation of masculinity as their gender identity. And third, of masculinity itself as an oppressive gender role that silences them and makes it difficult to talk about rape. And I think that's problematic because masculinity this, this notion of superiority of men over women is first personalized, it becomes a personal identity category, it's their masculinity, it's who they are. And then the second discursive move, masculinity is structuralized, it becomes a gender role, a oppressive societal category that's opposed on men. And I think the risk here is a bit that male complicity and power in the system is a bit obscured through that use, through that use of masculinity which makes them relatively easy to conflate male victims of SGBV, a very particular category, with men in general. And I think that is what happen often happens in the discourse. And actually, the Refugee Laws Project's documentary, Gender Against Men, where we just saw that the short excerpt of the victim's testimony, I think it's a very good example of that seamless shift from male victims of SGBV to men in general. Um, the documentary first illustrates the, ne the, the neglect of SBV against men in conflict and then links it to a much broader attack on masculinity in Ugandan society. So they show then how during the war in Uganda, how both men and women were confined to IDP camps and how this, that, and they argue that this has sort of engineered a change in gender roles where NGOs gave food to the women um, because they thought women would feed the family while the men, they spent it on drinking. So they argued that there was a shift in gender roles where women became the breadwinners and men became the caregivers. And then they argued that this has severely disrupted Ugandan society. They show how men started to drink. They say that society now looks very unhealthy. Men started to drink. They committed domestic violence. They joined the army. They committed suicide all in an effort to reclaim their masculinity. And so you see how the male victims of the HDBV coalesce with a much broader depiction of men as victims of changing gender roles spurred by the war and international aid organizations' vision of gender equality in Uganda. And something similar also happened in the discourse at the court and uh, for example, when I talked with practitioners about gender justice, some of them were actually quite quick to point out, well, we are also empowering men, we're not only empowering women, so we have to be very careful that when we talk about gender, we don't just talk about women. And this is also part of a backlash that uh, the development and international criminal justice sector more broadly has seen happening in the field where men have complained that they are left out in, in assistance and development programs. So this is a, a, a quote by a victim's lawyer who told me at the court, he told me, we have many boys as clients. Many boys feel that the girls are privileged in the assistance mandate, but also other NGOs were focusing a lot on the girls. They say, when will we have something? They, the girls, were just sleeping with the combatants, but we were at the front line. So in that sense, you can see how gender discomfort in international criminal justice is also enmeshed with a much broader conservative ba 
backlash against the rise of feminism. And of course, at the court, it takes a much more subdued, a much more subtle form, which is expressed through the legal strategy. So not, not like this, but in a sort of more subtle form. And in fact, um, some, some, use the, some use male victims of SGBV to erase patriarchy altogether. Um, for some, basically, some, some NGOs take the existence of male victims of SGBV as a reputation of patriarchy in and of itself, as if male victimhood cannot possibly coexist with a gendered structure of power which still overall privileges men. So for example, this was a symposium called Sexual Violence, the Male Perspective, which was organized in The Hague a, a year ago. And there were also some um, ICC judges who came to speak at the symposium. And the uh, um, organizers of the symposium concluded that sexual violence can happen in conflict and in peace situations. Sexual, sexual violence can happen to anyone, no matter the age, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Perpetrators can be of any gender identity. On this note, therefore, the understanding and prosecution of rape and other forms of sexual violence as acts of male domination over females needs to be overhauled. And something similar um, was also argued by Chris Dolan, who was the key figure at the Refugee Law Project. And he wrote an article where he accuses feminists of perpetuating the core tenets of patriarchy. He says, they, the feminists, take male power as a given rather than as a social construct, and they refuse to consider what the reality of male vulnerability to sexual violence does to a simple model in which men are per se more powerful and women are intrinsically vulnerable. And, and I agree with Dolan that there's nothing natural or biological about male power, but this does not make it any less socially entrenched. Mm. But some scholars have gone further, feminist scholars have gone further and have launched an outright attack on structural feminism. Um, this is from Janet Halley. Um, she's also one of the sex positive scholars. She's a professor at Harvard. And she has argued that structural feminism is completely inattentive to the possibility that women have been instigators or perpetrators of war. Worse, it involves a, to me, absolutely chilling indifference to the suffering of men. And she has argued that we should take a break from feminism as long as it persists as a subordination theory set by default to seek the social welfare of women, femininity, and of female or feminine gender by undoing some part or all of the subordination to man, masculinity, and or masculine gender. Uh, but I would argue that as long as, as men uh, have more wealth and power in our societies than women, but also than people who defy the gender binary, and as long as most societal institutions uh, still perpetuate and legitimize male power, for example, family, the state, um, science, the army. I think it's quite premature to do away with the structural understanding of um, gender, particularly because if you look at the cases of female perpetrator and male victims that are most commonly cited in the literature, it's precisely those where women are in positions of power, for example, uh, female combatants or female prison officers abusing male civilians or male prisoners, or adult women abusing boys. Um, so, I think, um, so I think there's a bit of a danger that um, we sort of throw a bit out the baby with the bathwater here. 
that this discourse is actually, this is not a marginal discourse. I think it actually has been more successful in capturing people's imaginations than you might think. Uh, for example, this is a quote by Karen Engel, who's also a scholar, a feminist scholar who supports Halley in her position. And she says that in a development that is unlikely to have been intended by many structural bias feminists, that's how she calls them, sexual violence and conflict is rarely portrayed in terms of male domination and female subordination today, but rather as represented in gender neutral terms. It is seen as a weapon of war that frightens and affects not only women and girls, but also men and boys. But I'm, I'm very concerned about this concept of gender neutrality. I can, I can see how it benefits the court, because um, the court's legitimacy is based on the idea that societal conflicts can be sorted through legal procedure, that the court can be neutral, not infected by politics. But I'm not sure that this idea of gender neutrality is good news for anyone else, um, including for, um, because if you look at sexual violence and conflict, much of it is barely intelligible and most is absolutely invisible if you don't apply a structural lens of understanding gender dynamics, including, of course, sexual violence against men, which feeds off those very same patriarchal structures in which hegemonic norms of masculinity punish and threaten all men who do not conform. So I think there's a risk that this discourse of gender neutrality, wittingly or unwittingly, I don't know, panders to a much more conservative agenda that wants to get rid of the concept of gender altogether. So I, I would argue, sort of from a more political perspective now, that um, we shouldn't take a break from feminism. Instead, we should double down on feminism. I do believe, I think it's very fair that the neglect of SGBV against men is a huge failure of international criminal law and feminism. But the current construction of male competitive victimhood reconstitutes patriarchy. It returns us to the status quo ante, removing any structural understanding of gender relationships which is exactly why this neglect of SGBV in conflict happened in the first place against both men and women. So instead, it should really double down on feminism, employing an intersectional analysis of um, gender, racial, and class power relations in 21st century global patriarchy. Because I think those cases that I, that I cited about, male, about female perpetrators and male victims very much suggests that uh, rape is about power and not about sex, and uh, especially about racialized gender and class power. But if you look at it from a power perspective, it's also important to note that power remains concentrated in men, in male hands. Um, so just to conclude, um, I argue that gender has been recuperated, co-opted to some extent, in international criminal justice. I think it's partly the reason for that is sort of the strong sense of legal procedure as being the defining feature of international criminal law, where gender is seen as disruptive of the normal, this, this sort of the normal operation of law. The ICC has tried to reconstitute itself as a gender neutral arbiter of the law through the legal strategy. The legal strategy externalizes gender as both an agenda that is driven from outside and that is primarily relevant elsewhere, not at the court, but far away in the court situation countries. And they also have pointed out 
that gender, the gender agenda neglects men and can thus be discriminatory. And so I, my, my, my concern is that male victims of SGBV have been used a bit here as ideal victims through whom the legitimacy of the gender status quo can be resurrected. Um, if men are triple victims, so are women. But I think the current discursive construction of male rape and conflict as extraordinary renders female rape ultimately ordinary. And um, I believe that if we want to recapture a structural approach to gender injustice, which I think we should, it's important to recognize and address that sort of developing sense of gender discomfort among practitioners in international criminal justice. Because if gender justice is ever to happen, it's not enough for it just to be anchored in the written law. It also has to be part of those ongoing, everyday legal sensibilities, practices, and discourses to really make a difference. Thank you.